So, if you weren't with us last week, we are halfway through uh, a mini-mini-series on Joseph, and um, you're, you're kind of lucky not to have been here, because let's face it, it was a pretty depressing week in the UK, uh, and if you call yourself English, as I've been reminded by our Polish friends here, thank you so much for reminding me of the pain that we felt with Iceland this week. Uh, it's lovely, edifying, builds me up. Um, and actually, if you were here last week, the, the priest that I brought was thoroughly depressing as well. It looked at the uh, first half of Joseph's life and the tragedy of Joseph's life, and we just began drawing this man's timeline together up here um, via the projector. And we looked at how although his life started as a favoured son and a chosen one of God with plans to rule and reign, his life soon went sour and his brothers plotted to murder him, didn't they? Then they threw him a pit, in a pit and he was sold into slavery. We called that Act 1. Act 2 then picks up with him in Egypt, sold into slavery. And at first everything's starting to go well. We hear he's a successful man. But it doesn't take long before Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him of um, sexually assaulting her and he is thrown into prison in the low place. And we saw Act 2 of his life. Act 3 then carried on from that and we see Joseph in prison. Again, he starts to gain some status. Um, God uses him remarkably to interpret two very influential people's dreams. But actually, when Joseph cries out for help from one of these men to see him released from the pit, from the grave that his life is in, we hear that the cupbearer, who was uh, an, an aide to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the land, completely forgot about him. And we left him there in prison, estranged from his father, with no reputation and no future, languishing in jail, as good as dead. That's where Joseph was. And we discussed how God puts this story of a life of faith in the Bible, in Genesis, in the book of Beginnings, in part to show us that a life of faith was never meant to be plain sailing. But we'll have ups and downs in it and hardships. But what this never means, never, ever, ever, ever means, is that God is not with you and should never be interpreted like that. And we saw how it was vital to understand this because the Bible tells us that the shocks, the lows of life and trials can act like a, a pickaxe to our hearts and our trust and our faith in God. And bit by bit, storm by storm, it can hammer away at our faith and our confidence in God, particularly if we don't understand this truth. Without having an understanding of what God taught us in the first 30 years of Joseph's life, grounded, rooted in our minds, that God, by his grace, has sought to prepare us for the trials of life with the story of Joseph because of multiple faith shocks and hardships. Our faith can end up like this. This is where we left it. Like a shadow of what it used to be, worn out, run down. So it was a happy time we had together last week, wasn't it? It was 
I depressed myself up here, so I have no idea how you poor people felt. But this week it starts to get a little better. And what is so interesting and so amazing about Joseph's life is that although the first 30 years of his life could be described in no other terms than as an absolute tragedy, we never see this fading faith in Joseph. We never see any diminishing in his faith. He doesn't become like I do at the first sign of difficulty or shock. Instead, his character remains faithful in every situation he is put into, and he is ready to be used by God in all the situations. He never hardens his heart to God. And in fact, rather than shrink, we see the opposite happen. We see his faith in God grow. And a faithfulness to God grow. And a confidence in God grow. And no place is this more apparent than in the last two acts of his life, where we're going to pick the story up from this week. So I've just been, as I said, telling the story, and I'm just going to continue to do that this week with the last two acts of his life. So in Genesis 41, 1 to 52, we find Act 4 of Joseph's life, which starts like this, two years afterwards. Two years after he asked to be pulled out of the pit and was forgotten. Out of the blue, we find out Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the land, has two vivid dreams in the night, which disturbed him greatly and woke him repeatedly. The first was of seven fat, sleek, healthy cows grazing on the banks of the River Nile, when suddenly seven gnarled, thin, ugly cows crawled up out of the water and swallowed the healthy cows whole. The second was of seven healthy, good heads of grain growing on a single stalk, when suddenly seven other heads scorched and thin and weedy sprouted out of the same stalk and swallowed up the good heads of grain. And what we hear is that no wise man or magician in his council could interpret the dreams and put Pharaoh at rest and peace. And only at this point did the chief cupbearer, two years after Joseph had asked him to, remember Joseph before Pharaoh. So quickly we see Joseph brought up out of the dungeon, shaved, unlike me today, made presentable and brought before the most powerful man in the land. And without any form of faltering or discernible fear, Joseph, trusting God, again interpreted the dreams that were put before him in a way that brought revelation to Pharaoh and all of his officials and brought the peace that Pharaoh had found nowhere else. And he said this, essentially, the seven fat cows and seven good heads of grain mean there'll be seven good years of plenty in the land. But the seven thin cows and the seven bad heads of grain indicate that straight after this, famine is coming, a deep famine that will completely ravish and ruin the land. 
God is forewarning you that there will imminently be seven years of abundance followed by seven years of famine. And after this, Joseph gave some wisdom. Because of this, you should put a wise and discerning man in charge over all of the produce over the la- of the land of the next seven years so that he can store up the food and redistribute it in the years of the famine to avoid disaster in the land. And then I am sure in an act that was beyond Joseph's wildest dreams, 13 years, 13 years after his brothers attacked him, God rescued Joseph from the pit he had been thrown into, the grave he had been consumed by. And we're told that Pharaoh, seeing that God was with Joseph and the wisdom that came from him that had outstripped any wisdom he had seen in his kingdom, put a ring on Joseph's finger and appointed him to be the second in command, the governor over all of Egypt, all its resources, to prepare for the coming famine. And over the next seven years, we are told that Joseph acted out this role diligently and faithfully, collecting grain and resources into storehouses in every city from the fields around. And during these seven years, we're told he prospered again, that he got married and had two sons, and finally, the most, that finally the most remarkable turnaround had taken place in his life. From pit to mountaintop, never to be cast low again. I want to pause here for a moment, if I can. That's Act 4 in Joseph's life. Pretty remarkable. Three things strike me about Joseph's faith and how it endured in this act that we shouldn't miss. The show he has gone in the opposite direction to fading and cracking. Instead, through the trials, being established and getting an enduring, enduring faith. Firstly, it's this. I am not sure after being uh, torn apart from my family, sold into slavery, unjustly accused of sexual assault, spending years languishing in jail, I would come with the confidence that God is actually going to act as I come before the most powerful man in the land who held my life and death in his hand. I think I would come with a little bit of doubt to that moment. What do you think? God, you've not answered my years of pleading this last couple of years. God, this happened to me, this happened to me. But not Joseph. He comes trusting, confident that God is going to interpret the dream. There is not a trace of doubt. He says, all dreams belong to God. Death would have been in my mind. What God can do in this situation was what was on Joseph's mind. Secondly, can you imagine for a moment having brought this interpretation in our day and our time? There will be a famine in seven years. So what we need to do is take government control of all the resources in the land for seven years. You're not going to be able to trade them, enjoy them, or be as well off. 
Um, we're going to commit huge central resources to building storehouses uh, because this man over here had a dream that there was going to be a famine. And then imagine being responsible for enacting out those orders. You wait for seven years with mounting pressure around you. Maybe mounting criticism, not knowing whether this famine was coming. Seven years. Trusting God that this would happen. What happens if it doesn't? People would brand you a lunatic. Listen, it's not entirely comparable, but Joseph ran the risks of massive shame in this part of his life and steering a nation off course. Big stakes. And through this, he trusts implicitly that God will do what God says he will do. And he runs and he acts with the vision that God has put on his heart, unwaveringly. Finally, although Joseph is immersed in a culture, now for more time than he was with his own family, where there were other gods and deities and beliefs present, and he has prospered in this culture and for this culture, we don't say in any time his success lead him to trusting in himself or these other gods. Instead, he remains constant in his belief that the God of his fathers has been in and over everything. So much that he names his two half-Egyptian boys in faith. One, Manasseh, which means forget, because he says, God has made me forget all my hardship and my father's house, that I faced in my father's house. And Ephraim, or Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my afflictions. In Joseph's mind, it was always entirely God's doing, the God of his fathers. Joseph's faith was astounding, absolutely astounding in Act 4 of his life. But he was still dead to his father, to his place in God's chosen people, and estranged from his family. But that didn't last, as we find out in Act 5 which we see between 41.53 and chapter 50. It's a long one. In the final act of this roller coaster life, the predicted famine hits, and it's very real in history, and it's very severe. In Egypt and all the lands around. But in Joseph's storehouses was bread, food abundant, for all the people of Egypt and beyond. And news spread that there was much needed food in Egypt. People from all the surrounding nations came to buy from Joseph's stores. And one day it finally happens. Ten men walk through the door, who by now Joseph has not seen in 20 years. And last time they saw him, and he saw them, they stripped him of all of his dignity, his birthright. They conspired to murder him and they threw him in a pit before selling him into slavery. His brothers, who had taken everything from him in his youth, came. And now here they were in dire need, starving. And he 
the governor of all Egypt, with the keys to life and death for them in his hands. So different was he that as they came and bowed before him, in his presence to appeal for food, that none recognised who he was. What would he do now? What would you do now? Holding all the cards. Simply denying these evil men food would have been justified. Not giving them access to the goods that you had. Making them in some way pay and understand the years of hurt and anguish that they had caused him. Do you know, well, it looks at first in the story like he's going to do this. We hear he talks roughly to them and accuses them of being spies and puts them in jails. Just rewards. But this is not a vengeance story. It's a story of reconciliation. And remarkably, as the story unfolds, Joseph shows no signs of bitterness and undealt with anguish towards his brother. Instead, he uses his authority to do three things. Ensure his brother's hearts were changed. Ensure his family is brought back together. And take care of his family by bringing them into his king's care and protection for the rest of their lives. So, as the story goes on, we see that Joseph first tests his brother's hearts to ensure they had changed. Releasing them from prison, he tells them that if they are honest men and not spies, to leave one brother in custody and go and fetch the younger brother, Benjamin, the youngest brother, the father's only remaining son to his own mother, Rachel, who they had been claiming they were getting the grain for, then he would trust them and give them all that they needed. So leaving Simeon in prison, the brothers returned to their father, who, fearful of losing his youngest son, initially says they cannot return. But the famine, we hear, grows deeper and stronger, and Jacob at last has to agree to Joseph's terms. And when they return to, Je- to Egypt, Joseph's test is ready. At first he spends the evening dining with his brothers who have met his requests, all the time concealing his joy and compassion at seeing them again. But come the morning after this meal, he hides a silver cup in Benjamin's bag. And as the brothers leave, he accuses him of stealing from his house and abusing his kindness. And he tells the other ten brothers that he cannot return to be with their father. And at this moment, he sees the changed hearts of the men before him. His older brother Judah in particular, who we're told in a different story has been deeply humbled by God, falls before him and says, No, no, my father will die if this happens. Please take me instead. Boom. Again, everything changes. Joseph sees how hearts that were once selfish and are, putting their, are now putting their father first and loving them, their brothers like themselves, even if they're more favoured by them. And Joseph can conceal himself no longer. I am Joseph, he cries, your brother. And embracing them, he calls them to come into Egypt and be safe from the coming famine. So his brothers summon their father, confessing all that they have done to Joseph and seen in Joseph in the land 
And they brought this old man, now 130 years of age, to Egypt. And Joseph is finally reunited with all of his family and his father. And there he leads them and provides them with choice lands in Egypt all the days of their life. And Act 5 and Joseph's story ends, really, when his father Jacob dies. And his brothers once more come to him, fearful that his forgiveness of their wrongdoing will not outlast their father. And they plead with him. Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions and servants of God, your father, Joseph once wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And to bring about many that many people will be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to him. The end of the story is this. His brothers had never quite realised the depth of the forgiveness that he had poured out on them. That this was an ending, an everlasting, and an unchanging forgiveness. And in this story, remarkably, we see that despite everything that his enduring faith has matured to the point where he is able to endure a personal death to all the harm that had been done to him. He was able to let it go and not let his responses be governed by the pain of what had happened to him, but allowed his responses to his brothers and his family to flow out with the character of God to stand by this forgiveness all the days of his life, never to return to remember the wrongs that had been done to him. See it? Throughout his life, Joseph developed and displayed an amazing, rich and unwavering faith that truly endured and matured like a fine wine through the difficulties he had faced. How did he do this when his life was so full of challenge, of highs and lows that could wreck his faith? What were the keys from Joseph's life? I just want to draw on three quickly. Firstly, I want to come back to what we found last week. Joseph never saw that life was supposed to be like this with God. He always knew that it was going to be like this. So it didn't come as a shock to him. He didn't go in down that route of God is not with me. But he knew that God was with him. Come the highs, come the lows of life. The faith shocks did not wreck him. Secondly, and really importantly, we see Joseph maintain an openness in his life to the Spirit of God breaking in, no matter what situation he was in. He saw the Spirit act in some undeniable ways. 
He recognises even in the highs and lows of life when the spirit was at work in prison, interpreting dreams, towards Pharaoh, interpreting dreams. And particularly we see this in the final act, which I didn't read. But it says that when his brothers bowed before him, Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamt as a young man. He saw that in that moment, God by his spirit had been at work. And this was the fulfilment of what God had spoken. Remember the corns bowing before him? And at no point, no matter how bad life got, did he harden his heart when he recognised the lead of the Spirit in his life. That's nothing like a moment, is there, of hearing God's life, like a word to carry you through hardship. The hardship might not change, but it instantly changes us, doesn't it, when we hear a prophetic word. I mean, I just I remember a time when and I was really thinking about giving up preaching, actually. I was, um, I was finding it really hard. I wasn't there. And we were, we were at a North Conference. And there's a guy who leads a church over in Ireland. I think you were there for this, weren't you, this moment. And, like, and I was really, honestly, cast low with this part of my life. And I was struggling with it because, actually, I felt God speak to me quite clearly about this being a part of my, my future. And this guy, Dave, just came up to me. And like he just, just said, like as we were praying, believe God has called you to preach like he didn't know anything about my situation he didn't know that this was a low low ebb for me a difficult time he didn't know my heart and my confidence and my courage was down God used him through the gift of prophecy to speak oh man you know some of my learning some of the difficulties preaching is a difficult thing to learn how to do if any of you are called to it Tim Keller says it takes 200 preachers before you find your style and I'll tell you what, you get some knocks along the way. <laughs> but, but, God speaking into that gave me just what I needed to walk on in what God had called me to. Remarkable. We must always remember to remain open like Joseph to the Spirit of God in all situations. Finally, and most importantly, though, I believe the key lies in some of the final words spoken by Joseph to his brothers that I read to you a little moment ago, which gives us such a huge insight into his mindset in life. Genesis 50.20, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And he's just repeating a way of thinking that he's already shown in an earlier verse here show that it truly is his entrenched way of thinking. Genesis 45, 4-5. Come near to me, please, he said to his brothers as they came. I am your brother Joseph, who you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. God sent me before you to preserve life. You know, these are the words of a man who understands the sovereignty of God over everything. That God being God has the right to do whatever he wants in whatever way he saw fit. Because ultimately, he made it. He sustains it. He authored it all and was in control of it all. You know, this wasn't just some distant idea to Joseph or something he just said because it sounded nice and he knew he should in Christian circles, you know, on a Sunday. Yeah, God's in control. 
God's in control. I know, I know that, but I'm really not living like that. It's actually a little bit scarier than that. The truth is, it had affected him so deeply that he always, in every circumstance, every moment of every day of his life, saw himself first as being a representative of God in God's big story. He was an actor in God's story, not the author of his own story. So Joseph wasn't first and foremost a slave to Potiphar, a man hated by his brothers. He was a representative of God in God's family plan of restoration, seeking to do the author's will. And he wasn't first and foremost a prisoner in Pharaoh's court. He was an ambassador of God, walking the pages of the story that God was writing for him, whatever these pages unveiled. And as a result of this mindset, he didn't fall into the trap of dwelling on the accumulative faith shocks. Feeling his life was a wreck or a ruin or hopeless just because he had been through some hardships. Because bad stuff had happened to him. It didn't mean that God was not real. Nor did he fall into the future-orientated trap of becoming angry with God, despondent, in life, letting the character of God fail in him whilst waiting for unfulfilled prophecies. The dreams we find were a delight for him, an encouragement for him when the word of God was proven true in them. But they were only something, the text says, that he remembered when they were being fulfilled. They, they weren't something that I've seen with others where they sort of beat God with prophecy to remind him that he's faithful. Instead, we see there is real pain and real difficulty in his life. Yes, that affects him. But in every twist and turn of Joseph's incredible life, he sees every moment in the now, whatever he is doing in that moment, as being one of the lines that makes up his part in the great story of God. He so he constantly lives with the diligence that his God desires with the readiness that he asks, and the faith in his sovereign purpose. Each event in his dramatic life is just the next act of God's story for him, in which he needs to represent God and follow his king's lead. So how do we apply this? life now. How do we do it in light of Jesus? Well, I think firstly we find it in the New Testament that God wants us to have the exact same robust faith as Joseph for the exact same reasons. And I think this picture is built from loads of places. So Hebrews 12 verse 1 urges us, let's run the race with endurance, the race that is set before us. Paul in 9.20-22 reminds his readers of Isaiah 64 verse 8 and says, Know that he is the potter and we are the clay in life, being shaped and made by him for his purposes. Hebrews again urges us in 3.13-15 to exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ 
And if we indeed hold to our original confidence firm to the end, as it said, today as you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And James, Jesus' brother, in 1, 2 to 4, says, Count it all joys, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now when we, we put all of these verses together, and many more in the New Testament, we're being urged to be defined by the same enduring faith that Je- Joseph had. And not to let our hearts and our faith grow faint by life's face shocks, but instead to have the same unhardening hearts to his voice, understanding of the world that he had, to see him as the creator and us as the creator, him as the race maker, us as the runners. And to be clear that there will be trials, ups and downs, but as we endure, there will be the same pattern of perfection and growth in our faith and lives that we see in Joseph. Anybody starting to see the themes with the prophetic that we had this morning? So there is a sameness to Joseph that God wants us to have, but there is one key difference, and it's a real key one. That means no matter what reason Joseph had to be secure in the hand of God, you have more. And that is the life of Jesus. In whose life we find that one of the reasons for Joseph's suffering was for God to begin to sow into history an understanding of how he would one day come and use a man to save mankind. One who, like Joseph, was the precious son of his father in heaven. Who, like Joseph, was an anointed ambassador of his family, God's family on earth. Who, like Joseph, suffered deeply at the hands of those who were supposed to love him. He knew abandonment insult, beating, betrayal. But even more, he knew the flat line of death that came after a brutal, prolonged, humiliating execution. And like Joseph knew in this, the separation from his father, God in heaven, like no other. But who like Joseph never once faltered in his perfect, enduring faith Even when faced with death, he trusted God's hand, was really authoring every moment of that for his purpose. And so, like Joseph, he was raised up to be governor, only this time governor of all God's eternal kingdom for all time. to ensure the salvation of all who came to him from this famished land, famished by not knowing the life-giving goodness of God, so that he could pour out his favour, his life and his resources 
on all who came to him for help, all who called on his name. To go before all who had harmed and rejected him in this life, to give them back life in all his fullness. To take them into his protection and to know his eternal forgiveness to ever, forever and make them a people who bless the nation with the story of him. The saviour who, like Joseph, willingly gave his life and was used by God in exchange for ours. So the difference now is that for those who believe and trust in this life, our assurances in God go far beyond Joseph. It means that even if your life ends in the most painful, humiliating death, even if there is never any pulling out of the pit in this life as there was for Joseph, there will always be a raising up because he has given you his life. The Jesus who saved your life reunited the family with you, took you into his protection, beat death in its causes, and now has all of God's resources in his hands, will give a full reconciliation and return to glory in heaven for you. The Bible is very clear that that is very secure and can always, always be rested on. There is always an assured hope after Jesus. So where to finish all of this? When I said that I, um, I wrote this because of a prophetic sense, I had the sense that through this, what God wanted to do was deeply and above else in anything in our lives, so into us and encourage us to have and continue in an enduring faith like Joseph's trusting in Christ's victory and reign in life through all circumstances, even death, Freedom Church. Guys, your body is going to get baggier. Your health will one day fail. People will hurt you. You will make foolish mistakes. You will suffer loss, disappointment, miscommunications, wickedness in response for doing what God wants. And eventually you're going to die. But if you live with an enduring faith in God, born out of a mature view of the Christian life, a constant openness to the Spirit, a confidence that every moment of every day of your life is in Christ's purpose, if you remain receptive to the Spirit, you will know a life full of the fruit of Joseph's life. Where you will know the miraculous achievements of his voice and arm, even as you walk in the dark places of your life. And ultimately, you will know the greater victories that are only won through holding on and encouraging one another in lasting faith. Joseph saved the nation and blessed all of civilization at the time and became a model of Christ for all to see. He didn't know he was going to. It was an enduring faith in God. 
by which God accomplished these things. The greatest miracles are done through enduring faith. And it is only this very constant, this enduring trust that enabled God's plan to be outworked through Joseph in him. I just, um, that's it for my written stuff, but I guess I can't stress the importance of growing in this enduring faith. There is faith in the moment and there is faith throughout the whole of the ups and downs of life. And I felt just two things. One, that there's a sense of just in encouragement in a whole look. Feel like the Lord will so deeply speak to you. Listen, if you know you've let this enduring faith just wane with it, you know some of the faith shots have gone in. Again, I just feel like His Spirit just wants to move on you now. Just wants to restore you through the pattern of Joseph's life. Wants to lift you again. Wants you to remind you of that He's the same God of sovereignty that we see in Joseph's life, that we see in Jesus' life, who uses the bad to wrought good. That he's using those trials to perfect and shape and they will grow as you stand fast. And that greater miracles. He has great miracles for us, guys. He has great miracles for us individually and he has great miracles for this church. He has a plan to affect this city so remarkably through his church. And as we endure, we will see those greater miracles. And then I feel like he also wants to say, well done. And as we talk about the thanks for living in this church, for the love they show, I want to say thank you to those of you right now who I know are living and enduring in faith. And I believe that the Lord, just by his spirit, wants to say, well done. This is not something that is alien to this group of people. We've heard some of it today. Well done, Fee. You're doing amazingly. You're living the way the Lord would have you. What on Christian tour? What on guys? You're an example of this walking every day in the moment of God to us. You walk through health conditions. You walk through trials. You walk through difficulties. And the Lord wants to say, well done. Well done to you. Well done, Gillards. Well done. Well done, Nick. The Lord wants you to hear that. It's not that these trials, they don't, they get to us, they're hard. But as you endure in faith in his goodness, you are accomplishing his purposes. And he encourages you. It's not that we're not going to see breakthrough in those things. I've got faith for that. That's part of our inheritance. But as you walk through them, as you walk through them, the Lord speaks to you and says, well done, guys. Well done. Jack. You've fallen apart, mate. Sheila. Yeah, you're constant. You're constant faith and trust in him. It fathers us all, my friend. Sheila, it fathers us all. It teaches us how to run that race well. Thank you so much and well done. Thank you so much and well done. Do you know what? It's such a blessing to hear your story, guys. And it's so wonderful to 
have you as part of our family. We love calling you part of our family in return. It's a joy to us, both of you. And the Lord just wants to say, well done for walking that race. Well done. Good. Uh, there are many more. Listen, there'll be stories that I haven't mentioned out there. Definitely. Father God, Spirit of God, thank you that you're with us. Thank you that you're for us. Thank you that you leave stories in your word like Joseph. Father God, thank you that you direct us. And King of Kings, I want to pray that you would grow in us your enduring faith. Lord God, I want to pray it would be a hallmark, a stamp of this church, of our lives. Lord Jesus, Father, I pray we would be ready in the moment to hear your voice, Lord Jesus, but equally ready to walk the path, the race that you have set for us as a church, as a body, Lord God, to achieve the prize and the <coughs> goals that you have set for us, Jesus. Father, do not let our faith wane or wither because you are a good, mighty creator, God, and all of this is yours, and you sent your son to die for us. And Spirit, I want to pray for those people who know you haven't responded to your son yet. Lord, I want to pray by your Spirit, in this moment, they would just know the truth of that and the comfort and the joy of that, Lord, and that they would come to know what it is to be under your governorship, the governor of heaven, son of the king of kings. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.